Well, good morning, everyone. If you want to open your Bibles, we are going to continue with a message that I originally started, believe it or not, all the way back in October. We are in Hebrews chapter 12, and specifically, we're in the middle of a section that runs from chapter 12, verse 4, through chapter 12, verse 11. So we're in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. And from the standpoint of sort of getting us back into the flow of things, I'm going to just read the verses again, and then we'll begin to talk about them um, in context. So, beginning in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, actually, I'm going to do this, and to make it even more understandable, let's go all the way back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, and I'll just read this section to you. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, again, we are focusing on verses 4 through 11, and on the nature of how things have worked out, this has become a little bit more disjointed than I like because of the opportunities I have had to preach in Pastor Steve's absence. This actually has turned into a multi-month study. I taught once at the end of October and covered my first little section. Then I taught once on this in November. So finally we're picking the ball back up in December. And so I'm going to do a little bit more review than I normally would. Because we've been away from this for so long. I want to make sure we're on the same page. So I'm going to go through and review and bring us up to speed. And then continue on with some new material. Again, I've taught... Two lessons, and when I originally made my outline for this section, I had five points. And so far, we've covered three of the five points. For whatever reason, I have a hard time doing three with that hand. So we've covered three. I didn't even notice this. Like, wow, I can't, I can't make it work. Um, so I'll use my right hand. Three. We've covered, we've covered three of the five points so far. 
And so I want to briefly cover those. We covered the first point in October, points two and three in November, and today we're going to get to point four. Next week we'll cover point five. But really all of this builds off of Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through three, which builds off of Hebrews chapter 11, where we saw example after example of men and women from the Old Testament who lived by faith. They were not perfect, they had flaws, they had sins, but at the end they are held up to us as examples of faith. People who had endured, many of them great, great hardship, and yet they were able by faith to keep going. And the idea is not to put them on a pedestal, but to realize we have a faith that enables us to do the exact same thing. In fact, a a big part of this is the whole idea conveyed in verse 3 of people growing weary. All of this is given so that people won't grow weary. Some of these individuals had endured hardship already. We'll cover that in the review. But the idea was he wanted them to keep pressing on, to keep looking to Christ, to keep moving forward. In fact, that's the example for all of us. God exhorts us through Scripture, even when we're going through difficult times, even when things are hard, we are to keep pressing on, to keep going, to keep going. The idea is that we can endure the trials of this life by faith if we focus on Jesus, Jesus being our perfect example. And really, the imagery in the first part of this chapter, chapter 12, focuses on athletic contest of keep going, you've got to run with endurance, the race is in front of you, and all those types of things. And verses 4 through 11 are really building off of that. Now, before we get into this, I did clarify something, and I talked about this in detail in October, because what we see over and over again in verses 4 through 11 is the word discipline. Discipline, discipline, discipline. And I want to be clear, because the text is, if you look into it a little bit deeper, it matters. Discipline here is not just punishment. It's important to have this definition down because it's central to everything in the section. And it would be wrong to think that the word discipline as it's used in the scripture at this point is synonymous with punishment. It certainly could include punishment for misbehavior, but it's a more expansive term. It goes beyond that. Again, I developed this in greater detail before, but I want to reiterate it because we could lose sight of it. A standard Greek lexicon, which is simplistically would be the equivalent of a dictionary for us, says that the word that's translated discipline over and over means to train someone in accordance with proper rules of conduct and behavior. It's the idea of you're teaching someone how to walk. You're teaching someone how to do certain things. You're teaching someone. And really, the concept here is that expansive. So I came up with a definition of discipline. I'm not reinventing anything. I'm just putting it in the context that I think accurately captures based on how this term is used in context and what it means in the original language. Discipline is any method God uses to train us to live holy lives. Discipline is any method God uses to train us to live holy lives. And here's why that's important. Because it may involve, God's discipline may involve punishment, not eternal punishment. Christ dealt with eternal punishment on the cross. But God's discipline may involve corrective punishment for sin. But even if you don't sin, you still could be subjected to God's discipline. 
And that's what's important because so often we think only cause and effect. I only discipline my child when he sins. That's because in our English minds, discipline always equals punishment, it seems. And so we've got to have a more expansive view of this. Understanding that you can be disciplined by God, your circumstances of life can be God's discipline, even if it's not related to your personal sin. And that's very important. So, with that backdrop, let me remind you of the first couple of points before we get into the new material today. And this whole message broke down as five thoughts about the discipline of God. Five thoughts about the discipline of God. The first thought was that discipline must be kept in perspective. Discipline must be kept in perspective. Verse 4 is the basis for this point. Verse 4 says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin. Again, some of these believers were tired, they were weary. And verse 3 was really pointing them to look to Jesus, for consider him who endured such hostility by sinners. In other words, Jesus was treated horribly by sinners around him. He was crucified, and yet he was doing the will of God, the idea being in verse 3, so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Remember Jesus' examples. Verse 4 is building off of this, although it might not jump out at you immediately. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. We should follow in his example. Don't give up. Keep pressing forward. You can do it. And verse 4 is building on this because these individuals to whom the letter was originally written had endured real hardship. I won't go back and reread it, but there's scripture that talks about the fact that they had endured real hardship. Some of them had been publicly ridiculed and mocked. Some of them had probably been imprisoned for their faith. Some of them had been willing to identify themselves publicly with other prisoners who were prisoners for Christ. Some of them had lost all of their financial resources. Their property was taken away. Their livelihood was taken away. And so for some of them, they had endured a lot of things and they were perhaps thinking, you know what, I'm about done with this. What's the point of this? And the writer of Hebrews is telling him, hold on, keep it in perspective. Verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Sin here goes beyond personal sin. It's this sin is the personification of the evil world in which we live. Again, I developed all these things. If you want to go back and re-listen to the teaching, it's available on our church website. So I can't go into all the same detail. But the idea is that he's saying, look, you're living in a sin-filled world. You're battling against it. And for all that you've endured, you haven't endured what the saints of old did. Some of them were sawn in two. Some of them were killed by swords. Jesus himself was crucified. He's saying, look, no matter what you've gone through, it's not been that bad yet. And I don't think he's being a smart aleck saying, get over it. He's sympathetic to them. They really had endured. But his point was, you've got to get your head away from your situation You've got to have some perspective. Look, yes, it's difficult, but you can keep going. In fact, what you're enduring isn't even as bad as what saints of old have endured, and they were able to keep going. That's the ultimate point. Other people have had it worse than you, and they were able to walk by faith. You can walk by faith. It's almost as though he's telling them, and again, I don't think he's being a smart aleck or or angry with them. He's loving them, but he really is trying to be honest and saying, look, you've got to get out of your self-pity. You're not the only person who suffered. 
In fact, a lot of people are suffering worse than you, and if you realize that, it's going to help you to stand up and keep pressing forward. I think 1 Corinthians 10.13 accurately captures the gist of the teaching. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, meaning there's no time when you can say, well, nobody else is going through this, it's just me. I'm the one that God chose for this. No, there's always somebody that's going through something similar. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able. I'm always sympathetic when people say, I can't take anymore. I'm sympathetic because I really believe it. They mean it of their heart, except that it's not true theologically. And I know what they mean because I've been there where you think, Lord, I mean, I can't take another blow. But the point is, you can't do it. God can enable you to do it. But with the temptation, we'll provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. God won't allow you to drown. That's the bottom line. Again, when you're in the midst of difficult, difficult, difficult trials, it's easy for any one of us to say, you know what? I can't swim anymore. I'm just going to sink. But the whole point of this text is, no, keep going. Keep going. Other people have done it. You can do it. We need encouragement in trials, but we also need to see things in proper perspective. Other people are going through greater hardship. No matter what you're going through, somebody's going through something worse. And that sort of is a a lead-in to point two, because another part of being in the midst of our trials is we can think, boy, God forgot about me. And yet my second thought about the discipline of God is that discipline is an expression of love. Discipline must be kept in perspective, and discipline is an expression of love. From verse 5, we get 5 and 6. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It's almost as though he's anticipating that someone's going, why me? And his first point is, you forgot what the word of God says. And again, I think he's being loving in this, but he says you've forgotten the exhortation. And the exhortation came from God's word, and this idea of exhortation isn't just a rah-rah cheer. I quoted several scriptures where the same Greek word is used, and sometimes it's translated as encouragement. Sometimes it's translated as comfort. That, that's all wrapped up in this idea You're forgetting the scriptures, and the scriptures are designed by God to comfort you, to encourage you, certainly to spur you on, to exhort you. And he makes it clear the scriptures are addressed to them as sons, meaning these aren't just impersonal things. These are what God gave for his children. And he's quoting specifically Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. But the idea that both are addressing, both in it being quoted here in the New Testament and when it was originally given, there's a human instinct which is in the midst of trials to back away. I've got to get away. I've got to recoil. I've got to get away from this. We don't want to endure trials. We want to stop trials. I mean, that's it. The Apostle Paul, his honest assessment, I prayed three times, Lord, take away this thorn in the flesh. And the Lord said, no. You know. God sometimes answers prayer with no. And as a believer, that doesn't mean he's callous and doesn't care. It just means my grace is sufficient for you. Sometimes we want the easy way, not the hard way. I think that's natural. By the same token, 
That's not God's way. Sometimes we have to endure hardship, endure struggles. And that's the idea. Again here, discipline is not just, okay, you've sinned, so God's going to correct you. This involves also the circumstances of your life. God is training you through the hardships you're going through. And he's saying, don't run away from it. It's not necessarily a reflection of God's anger at us. God loves us. He cares for us as his child. That's why that that section, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, is supposed to be comforting to us. His discipline is evidence of the fact that he truly loves us. That leads to our third point. Discipline is evidence of salvation. Again, when I say discipline here, it's always God's discipline. Discipline is evidence of salvation. And again, this is all review. I'm just trying to sweep through this quickly as an overview. Verses 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now again, this is, this is written in a way that it's actually an imperative command. It is for discipline that you endure. That's telling us you will endure. You must endure. In fact, it's part of your training process as a child of God. You must endure. You must press on. You must keep going. Harkens back to Chapter 12, verse 1. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, keep pressing on. Keep moving forward even when it's difficult. Again, the writer understands that in the midst of their hardships, some of them have forgotten what the Word of God says. There are several people in here that give counsel to people biblically One of the challenges is, in the midst of a hardship, people are looking for something other than Scripture. They want a quick fix. No, no, no. Don't give me the Bible. I want... You realize that's what God gave us. That's what's supposed to help you endure. That's supposed to be your encouragement. Not in a how-to manual. Let's see, let's see, I've replaced that fuse and we'll be okay. No. You're supposed to understand this book. You're supposed to... Have this book internalized such that God can bring to your memory the scriptures that apply in a given circumstance so that you can see God in everything. That's the great challenge. We see ourselves. We don't see God. So the writer of scripture here is pointing them back to scripture and reminding them of these theological truths One of which is that God deals with us as sons, meaning sons and daughters, meaning collectively as his true children. And he ties in a corollary that should, in that context, make sense to everyone. He says, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The idea being in the culture of the time, if a father had a child, he was going to train him, period. No real father would not train his child. No real father would leave his child of his own devices. 
He's not arguing that that's the duty of a father in the context and everything. He's just assuming that everybody understands that. And just as children on their own don't raise themselves, so God's children don't raise themselves. God is active in our life from the moment of our salvation until we go to glory. He's active training us, teaching us through our life circumstance. And if God is disciplining you, that's evidence that you truly belong to God. Verse 8 has a telling statement. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, meaning all God's children undergo God's discipline, but if you are without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That is an unequivocal statement. It's very direct, and it means exactly what it says. If there's no evidence that God's working through the circumstances of your life, to train you to be holy, to train you to be more like Christ, it's evidence that you're not a part of God's family, that you're not a Christian. If you're without discipline, it means you're not a part of the household of God. Remember, all this is supposed to give struggling believers hope. People are going through hardships. People who are having trials... It's supposed to push them to keep going, to endure, not to give up. But it's also supposed to remind them that, look, God cares enough for you to change you, to show you the process to be different, to show you the process to be more like Christ. I said it a few weeks ago when I taught this. A Christian life that has no hardships, no struggles, There's no glimpse of a trial. That's not a dream come true. It's a nightmare because it's not a Christian life. Now all of that was our review. And the nature of the material, I thought maybe I would combine the last two points in one message and I realized I want to develop the last point even further than just a cursory overview So today we're going to only cover with the time remaining the fourth point. So five thoughts about the discipline of God. Discipline must be kept in perspective. Discipline is an expression of love. Discipline is evidence of salvation. And our new point, number four, submitting to discipline leads to holiness. Submitting to discipline leads to holiness. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. This is the substance of our point. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Now, the implications of verse 9 are very straightforward, but they're built on an assumption that I've already alluded to that I have to come back to again. Because some of the assumptions that were implicit to the original audience seem foreign to our particular culture and time today. He says, We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. 
Now that word furthermore is tying it together. This is a consistent flow of the argument of God treating us as his children. And he says, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. Now I want to be careful. I'm not idealizing first century culture here at all. It was every bit as wicked and evil in many cases, far more so than it is today. I mean, America is worse than it used to be, but it's got a long way to go to be as wicked as some of the first century governments. I've got a book in my office about first century, well, it's not just first century, but Caesars from before the time of Christ and after the time of Christ. And the wickedness of those men would make any president we've had in our lifetime look like choir boys. They were engaged in vile things that are unspeakable. I would not mention them publicly. The point is, we don't today have a corner on immorality and wickedness. And so I'm not holding up what I'm about to say as an ideal of, boy, if we were only like them, because they were really, really bad culturally. But in that culture, at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, which would have been before 70 A.D., fathers had a unique place, and there was an expectation that a father would discipline his child, period. The father was viewed as the instructor of his children, the trainer of his children. And certainly, even though that was a societal expectation, that is a biblical expectation. Fathers, don't exasperate your children, but bring them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. So there's a biblical sense in which fathers should do this. In this context, he's not really talking about that. He's talking beyond it in a cultural context. And it was a cultural context unique to Judaism, but also similar and understood in the culture around them. And again, the argument of verse 9 is that fathers disciplined their children and children didn't resent it. They appreciated it. They respected it. It wasn't something that would produce bitterness or anger as a matter of course, although certainly in individual circumstances it did. It was assumed by the argument of verse 9 that when a father disciplined his child, it engendered respect ultimately. An appreciation that one's father cared enough to be concerned with how the child turned out. So much so that a father would intervene with discipline so that the child was able to mature to adulthood in an appropriate way and the father cared and the child appreciated the investment of time and energy. Again, I'm not commenting at all because that's not the point of the text about the lack of those things in our culture today but we can look around and see that they're lacking rather I'm trying to explain the author's argument because he assumes something that Americans might not assume but he's building an argument the argument's not about the proper role of the father the argument assumes the proper role of the father and here's his point if we're willing to accept discipline from an earthly father, then why wouldn't we accept discipline from God? In fact, he's saying we should even more so accept discipline from God. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? 
It's almost as though he's saying, don't you want God's blessings? Don't you want to live a life to the fullness that God intends? Don't you want everything that God has prepared for you as his child? Don't you want to experience all that God intends for you? And the point is, you can't do that without God's discipline. Period. There is no shortcut. There is no other way. So he's making this general argument that earthly fathers discipline their children and you endure it, you appreciate it. More so, if God disciplines you, you ought to be thankful. You ought to be subject to it. You ought not rebel against it. You ought not fight against God. You ought to say, thank you, Lord. Now teach me what I need to know. Help me to understand, Lord, how this trial is to be used in my life. And even though he makes an argument based on the relationship of a regular earthly father to a child operating in the appropriate sphere, unlike earthly fathers who sometimes try their best and fail, God never fails. That's the ultimate point of verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. One of the early things as I was a new believer, as I was struggling and learning and as I was reading through scripture, one of the things that convinced me that scripture was real, that it wasn't just some man-made creation, is that it showed human frailty so accurately. It didn't cover up, it didn't glossy photo, it didn't retouch the photographs, it showed people warts and all. It showed a hero like David in his moments of weakness as an adulterer and a murderer. And in this context, the writer is saying something and acknowledging a truth of human existence. They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Talking again about earthly fathers, what he's basically saying here is that the fathers want to help their kids. They're trying their best. But at times, an earthly father is guided more by intentions than reality. What do I mean by this? What do I think the scripture is meaning? As a father, I don't know perfectly the future. I don't. I've got three daughters. I don't know perfectly the hearts of my daughters. I think I understand my daughters. Mostly because my wife tells me, because I don't understand girls very well. But that's a whole other story. I do my best. I've tried to raise them in a godly way. I've tried to take them along. But there come times where the best I can do is pray and guess. I wouldn't call it guessing. But you know what I mean. I don't know. I do a lot of premarital counseling and I tell people, you know, one of the, and I'm, normally I do it tongue in cheek, but there's a truth to it as a, to a young husband, I say, you know, now you're entering into a position where you can mess up two people's lives a lot. It was just you that you could mess up. Now, you, And if God gives you kids, you can mess them up too. So I hope you're ready to get married. The point, though, here. Father's discipline has seemed best to them. They're, they're doing the best they can. 
Sometimes they make mistakes. But God is not that way. God's not doing this on the fly. He's not making it up as he goes along. He's not looking at your life going, man, I didn't see that coming. What do I do now? It says he disciplines us for our good. That's Romans 8.28 type of language. God always knows what we need. Even when we don't like what we need. And why does he do this? So that we may share his holiness. The discipline of God produces in us the ability to be like Christ. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, there's this statement. 1 Peter 1, verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's what God wants for each and every one of you. If you know Jesus Christ, God wants you to be holy. When the Apostle Paul said, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ, he's talking about holiness in every facet of life. That's why God is allowing you to go through what you're going through. That's why God is, at times, correctively disciplining us for our sin, but at other times, he's just training us through the hardships of life. We don't have a Disney Christianity where everything always turns out well and everybody lives happily ever after. Look around. Look at the prayers in this church. Look at the prayers requests we share. I don't know anyone who's living Disneyland Christianity, Disney World Christianity. Life is hard. Sin intrudes in every facet. We struggle against our own sin. We struggle against the effects of sin on this creation where we see people sick and dying. Understand this. God is on his throne and he hasn't forgotten you. When you're going through hardship, God is trying to train you. God is trying to train me to be like Jesus. Fascinating accounts in the Bible. First Peter chapter 2, I, I go to many times, talking about Jesus. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. You could spend a lifetime learning how to not lash out at people who hurt you. You know, I was taught as a kid, somebody picks on you, you've got to fight, fight them. And I didn't have bad parents. We've got to be careful sometimes because we impart worldly values into a Christian life and sometimes we're supposed to turn the other cheek. With the circumstances that we have, no matter how difficult they are, God is using them to bring about our good. God is using them to make us holy as he is holy. No matter what you're enduring, it wasn't as unfair as what Christ endured. I know 
we endure unfair things. We're unfairly accused. We're unfairly treated. We're mistreated without cause. On and on it goes. No matter what you've endured, it's not as bad as Christ. And Christ could endure it all and didn't sin. He's our example. That's what God's trying to do in your life. That's what God is trying to do in my life. If we willingly submit to God's discipline, not kicking and screaming, but saying, Lord, teach me. I'm hurting. Comfort me. God, my heart is broken, but I'm going to keep moving forward because you saved me and I'm yours. If you can learn to do that, if I can learn to do that, we will live holy lives that's what God wants for us. So let me encourage you again. We're going to stop here today. Next week will be the final point, and I'll wrap up this section. Don't allow yourself to be consumed by your issues. There are times where I'm trying to convey imagery, and I, I just run short of words. But this is one of those times, as I think on this scripture, where the, the expression, you lose sight of the forest for the trees, comes into play. We can get so fixated on one thing that we miss everything else. And so the exhortation of this scripture is, don't be fixated on your problems, look up to Christ. Be fixated on Him. And if you're fixated on Him, then all these other things are going to bring about God's perfect will in your life. But if you take your eyes off Jesus, it's going to be like Peter. I just was rereading that text this morning. You look at the waves, you look at the wind, and you'll start to sink. And if that's where you are, then cry out to the Lord then, because he's not going to let you drown. He's going to reach out his hand, and he's going to bring you safely into the boat. Let me close our time with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, there are so many hurting people in the small family here at Lakeside. Lord, with our kids, maybe we're 600 plus people. Out of the 7 billion on the planet, we're hardly a blip. And yet we are representative of so much pain, of so much suffering of people who are mistreated, of people who are abused, of people who are physically hurting, of people whose bodies are breaking down, of families who are split apart by sin, of marriages that have unraveled as children who have turned their backs on their parents, and on and on the list of human calamities go. And that's just us. One little blip And yet, Lord, you reached down into a cesspool of our world and chose to save little blips like us. In and of ourselves, we're nothing, and yet you cared enough for us. You loved us enough to reach down and pull us out of the darkness, and we say thank you. And Lord, since you've seen fit to pull us out of the darkness, I pray that you would help us keep our eyes lifted and focused on you. Lord, it is so hard at times to keep pressing on. 
I know there are brothers and sisters in Christ who feel like they have the weight of the world on their shoulders, and in their own sphere they do. But I pray, Lord, that you would help them understand that there are other brothers and sisters carrying even heavier burdens. And at each step of the way, you're there. You're not going to let them collapse. You're not going to let them be consumed. You're going to walk with them. You're going to help them to endure. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us that encouragement this morning, no matter the scope of our problems. And Lord, if some of us are going through better seasons in life, I pray that we would be in prayer for our brothers and sisters. For example, like the Haas family who are suffering in Bolivia. I just pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts of compassion for one another and help us see your heart of compassion for us, even when our lives are difficult. And now I pray for our hearts as we prepare for our main service. I pray for Pastor Steve to be able to preach boldly and with power and I pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear and hearts that are quick to obey your word. We ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.